Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Sam Moppin is engineering. Today, in the second hour of the program, we're going to hear from Joel Rosenberg, his latest Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He um, has some very interesting conversations with the Saudi crown prince, for example, Egypt's president, Jordan's King Abdullah, uh, United Arab Emirates crown prince, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the time, uh, he was the uh, the prime minister that has since changed and uh, Israeli president Reuven Rivlin. So all of that part of the conversation with Joel Rosenberg coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, some of the some of the news. Senator Susan Collins, she's a Republican out of Maine. She has announced that she will vote to confirm Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, according to a new report. After holding a second personal meeting with Jackson on Tuesday afternoon, Uh, The senator told The New York Times that she had decided to support President Biden's nominee, saying that Jackson had alleviated some of her concerns that arose during last week's Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. Now, Collins, who remains a swing vote on the Supreme Court nominees quite often, said she felt reassured that Jackson would not be bending the law to meet a personal preference, according to the report. Now, one of the things this does is make her confirmation, assuming every Democrat votes in her favor, a bipartisan approval. Also, the Biden administration says that they will end Title 42 public health order that allows border agents to expel illegal border crossers immediately, according to multiple reports. The order was initially handed down under the Trump administration in the early days of the covid pandemic and renewed by the Biden administration in August of last year. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will order an end to the Title 42 policy this week. People familiar with the plans told The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times. A draft of the new order reviewed by the journal states that there is no longer a serious danger that migrants could spread COVID in border detention facilities, end quote. The implementation of the new order will be delayed until late May to give the administration time to prepare for a potential rise in migrants seeking to cross the southern border illegally. White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield said the administration expects to see a new influx of migrants once Title 42 is lifted. We're planning for multiple contingencies and we have every expectation that when the CDC ultimately decides it's appropriate to lift Title 42, there will be an influx of people to the border. Officials within the Department of Homeland Security have reportedly warned that rescinding the order could result in an influx of border crossers. The uh, president also announced that he intends to provide COVID shots for those crossing the U.S. border. In other news, to CRT or not CRT, that's, of course, critical race theory. John Stewart's new episode of his Apple TV show saw the comedian host left wing guests who took on the topic of race in America, arguing that all white people, all, every one of you, every single one of you are on some level inherently racist and upholds the systems and structures of racism in U.S. law and culture. It was yet another example of ideology crucial to critical race theory, receiving a prime media platform, which MSNBC, CNN, ABC and other mainstream media outlets have pushed consistently while at the same time denying critical race theory exists at all. 
With the war effort languishing, one military expert believes Putin is running out of steam in the war against Ukraine and said Russian forces are quickly losing morale. And in what could be deemed a diversity scam, top diversity, equity and inclusion employees at major public universities are earning massive six-figure salaries uh, for leading initiatives that some experts found to be ineffective and instead enforce a political orthodoxy. As the cleanup gets worse, the White House said President Biden didn't reveal classified information while attempting to clean up a gaffe he made while speaking to U.S. troops in Poland, saying this is what you can expect when you get to Ukraine. Are they going to Ukraine? Have they been to Ukraine? It was, wasn't altogether clear. Well, in a return of fire, the Ukrainian military has taken the fight to the Russian territory, a new development in what has been a primarily defensive war for the country. And GOP lawmakers released a report revealing a CDC official's testimony claiming that the agency uncommonly coordinated with teachers unions and crafting its school's reopening guidance, despite claims that such coordination was routine and non-political. Sean Hannity suggests that our current president is a walking, talking liability to the country, the world and its seriousness in these times, which are extraordinarily dangerous. And in a recusal push, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, should recuse himself from cases related to January 6th because of his wife's connection to related events or at least correspondence. Calling his calling him Beijing Biden, GOP senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson are sounding the alarm about financial entanglements between Hunter Biden and the Chinese government. On the Hunter probe, Miranda Devine reacted to the federal tax probe into his foreign business dealings, warning that the uh, dam is about to break on the scandal. Well, we'll see if that's true or not. In another examination of the Biden laptop media fallout, author Ashley Ringsberg uh, feels the New York Times and Twitter's botched handling of Biden's uh, Hunter Biden's infamous laptop allowed Americans to focus on trivialities instead of truly examining whether the Biden family is corrupt. And Mike Pompeo points out that energy dominance gave America enormous power and was an essential tool in our diplomatic efforts. We no longer have that tool in our diplomatic pouch. Tucker Carlson reminds that the human rights campaign and its corporate allies in the media have lied about Florida's parental rights and education bill and what it does. And Greg Gutfeld suggests we give Will Smith his due. He did a great service for the Oscars because if he hadn't slapped Chris Rock... The talk would have been just how bad and boring the show actually was yet again. More on the uh, on the subject of Will Smith later in the program as the Academy has spoken. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in the second hour, Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. Really quite fascinating. It is a work of nonfiction. Well, returning to the news, GOP lawmakers have pinned high inflation on the president's massive spending agenda. And in a report on displaced persons, almost a quarter of Ukraine's population of 40 million has been displaced since the start of the war 34 days ago. 
Well, Disney has vowed more LGBTQIA characters. It's one of many tweets from Christopher Rufo on the event. From the tweet, Disney corporate president um, Carrie Burke says, as the mother of one transgender child and one pansexual child, she supports having many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories and wants a minimum of 50 percent of the characters to be LGBTQIA and racial minorities. Rich Lowry weighs in, saying it's a five-alarm fire that the people in charge of an iconic company producing content for our children talk like they are in an SNL skit spoofing the obsessions and um, uh, the woke fanatics. Dear Lord, he writes on Twitter. Florida Governor DeSantis ripped Disney for its support of China. The Republican governor accused Disney of skewed priorities after the company ripped his decision Monday to sign legislation barring schools from teaching about gender identity and sexuality in grades K through 12, dubbed by LGBTQ advocates as the don't say gay bill. People asked me kind of about their posture on the bill. And I said, you know what? If we uh, if we would have put in the bill that you are not allowed to have curriculum that discussed the oppression of the Uyghurs in China, Disney would have endorsed that in a second. Governor DeSantis said at a press conference, Representative AOC is demanding the resignation of the only black member of the U.S. Supreme Court. Imagine the story that would be if um, she were a Republican and Clarence Thomas were liberal. Celebrities put heat on Smith over the attack on Chris Rock from the director, Judd Apatow. Uh, He could have killed him. That's pure out-of-control rage and violence. He lost his mind, end quote. From another story, The View host, Whoopi Goldberg, who is also a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Board of Governors, believes Will Smith will be able to keep his Oscar after slapping Chris Rock on stage at the ceremony Sunday, but doubled down Tuesday on her expectation that he will face some kind of punishment for the onstage assault. Southern Illinois University Edwardsville has dropped its investigation into a grad student for expressing his religious views. Imagine that. Well, from the story, following the letter from Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, Southern Illinois University Edwardsville dropped its investigation into an art therapy graduate student after classmates said her expression of religious and political viewpoints constituted harassment and microaggressions. The university issued three no-contact orders against Maggie DeLong, demanding that she have no contact or even indirect communication with three of her classmates. University officials rescinded the no-contact order within days of receiving the letter from ADF attorneys sent to the university in February, but had claimed DeLong uh, was under investigation. It was only after ADF attorneys demanded that the university produce all correspondence and all documents related to students' complaints and any investigation into DeYoung De- De- uh, that the university dropped its investigation. MIT finds fewer poor students since SAT and ACT requirements have been removed, and so they're resta- reinstating both. The Sacramento teachers' strike is continuing. After nearly two years of refusing to go to the classroom, teachers are back home. Betsy DeVos says tomorrow will be the sixth day more than 40,000 students in Sacramento are locked out of school, held hostage to the irrational demands of the big school union bosses. On the heels of California's draconian COVID lockdowns, it's time to put students first. Hollywood's deaf community is upset that Will Smith, the hit seen and heard around the world, stole the limelight from the film Coda. Instead of headlines about their big moment, all they saw were stories on Smith 
hitting rock. Governor DeSantis has vetoed the GOP-drawn congressional map. DeSantis had pushed for his own plan that would give Republicans the chance to pick up as many as 20 out of the state's 28 congressional seats, according to an analysis of the uh, Cook Political Report. Uh, But the state's legislature approved a map this month that analysts said would likely retain Republicans' edge in the state's uh, congressional delegation, but wouldn't advantage Republicans as much as the governor's proposal would. Hugh Hewitt weighs in, saying, good for Ron DeSantis, Florida. The map in New York, Illinois, Maryland, California, etc., have shown that gerrymandering is used by Democrat-run state elites to keep House Democrats in dominant positions in their maps. The GOP states need to play the same rules, one rule for both parties. California Democrats rejected the temporary suspension of gas taxes, uh, but raised taxes instead. They actually raised taxes on gas suppliers to use as rebates. From Republican Vince Fong from Sacramento. He writes that Sacramento Sacramento uh, Democrats gutted a common sense bill to temporarily suspend the state's gas tax to provide immediate relief and replace it with a massive tax increase on energy producers. I wish I was making this up. What happened represents everything that's wrong with Sacramento, which is, of course, the capital of California. Now that they're uh, pivoting from COVID and with the coronavirus pandemic fast fading in the rearview mirror, well, sort of, the Biden administration has now decided to uh, that mandating the vaccination of illegal aliens caught crossing the U.S. southern border is the thing to do. Migrants apprehended uh, illegally entering the country will now be required to get the COVID vaccine or show proof of vaccination in order to avoid detention and removal which since uh, the Rule 42 is going to be removed, that may not be possible anyway. The administration had long resisted this move, even as it imposed vaccine mandates on U.S. citizens. It's rumored that Joe Biden's domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice, was concerned that a COVID vaccine mandate on illegal aliens would serve as a greater incentive for migrants to cross. However, this is a dubious rationale. The more likely explanation is that the Biden administration was loath to impose a rule that would require expelling illegal aliens who refused the vaccine. Is the Washington Post suggesting vaccines don't work? Well, the Post reports that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is recommending that people who received the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine now seek to also get Um, One of the two available mRNA vaccines due to the findings from a recent study, the CDC has concluded that the Johnson and Johnson shot provides the least protection against serious coronavirus related illness and hospitalization when compared to the protection afforded by the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. Talk about an about face. It wasn't that long ago that the left media outlets like The Post and The New York Times labeled anyone who dared question the efficacy of any of the covid vaccines an anti-vaxxer. So what changed? Well, the science certainly didn't. Any good scientist knows that challenging assertions and seeking rigorous testing of the data are important to the process of good science. Labeling those who may be skeptical of new scientific claims as supposedly anti-science is, in fact, promoting dogma over and against science. Well, Disney acknowledges it does, in fact, have a gay agenda. Disney's loud and irrational objection to Florida's recently passed parental rights education bill has exposed what many have long observed. The supposedly family-friendly entertainment company harbors an inherently anti-family agenda. This reality has been brought to bear with the company's leadership deciding to go all in supporting Rainbow Mafia anti-family 
uh, programming. And a top-ranking FBI cyber official told the House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday he doesn't know the whereabouts of Hunter Biden's infamous laptop, while Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, entered the computer's content into the congressional record during the hearing. In an exchange with Vordran, Representative Gates asked about the location of the laptop containing evidence of the overseas business dealings of Hunter Biden pursued while his father was vice president. The Justice Department is preparing a disclosure related to Ray Epps, a man some suspect rather was an FBI informant goading the crowd ahead of the January 6th Capitol riot, despite his denials. Assistant U.S. Attorney Karen Rochlin revealed the plan in court Tuesday as lawyers from January 6th defendants demand more details about Epps. Who got it right? Well, the White House says President Biden watched uh, the Supreme Court nomination hearings. President Biden says he didn't. One of them's right. Republicans exposed the uncommon CDC teachers union ties on COVID school reopening guidance and ingredients to build a dirty bomb go missing from the Chernobyl monitoring lab. A Palestinian assailant killed five in Israel, uh, the fifth attack in recent days. On this day in history, 1822, Florida becomes a U.S. territory. 1867, U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward, he reaches agreement with Russia to purchase the territory of Alaska for $7.2 million, a deal ridiculed by critics as Seward's folly. 1923, the Cunard liner RMS Laconia becomes the first passenger ship to circle the globe as it arrives in New York. 1981, President Ronald Reagan is shot and seriously injured outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by John Hinckley, Jr., White House Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy, and a District of Columbia police officer Thomas Delaney are all also injured. 2004, in a reversal, President George W. Bush agreed to let National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice testify publicly and under oath before an independent panel investigating the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 2009, President Barack Obama asserts unprecedented government control over the auto industry, rejecting turnaround plans from General Motors and Chrysler and raising the prospect of controlled bankruptcy for either ailing auto giant. 2017, North Carolina rolls back its bathroom bill in a bid to end a year-long backlash over transgender rights that cost the state in business prospect projects, rather, conventions and basketball tournaments. And finally, and also in 2017, on this day in history, at Cape Canaveral, SpaceX successfully launches and then retrieves its first recycled rocket. Well, the headline, taxes, taxes, and more Taxes. The president's budget proposes $2.5 trillion in tax increases as the president's budget is a declaration of priorities. So it's worth underscoring that the president's new budget for fiscal 2023 proposes $2.5 trillion in tax increases over 10 years. His priority is taking money from the private economy and giving it to politicians to spend. Well, the new tax on wealth and capital gains um, if you don't sell assets is kind of the hallmark that's supposed to raise about three hundred and sixty one billion dollars. But there's so much more raising the top income tax rate to thirty nine point six percent from thirty seven percent would raise um, one hundred and eighty seven billion dollars. 
Raising capital gains taxes includes taxing gains like ordinary income for taxpayers earning more than a million dollars would snatch $174 billion, raising the top corporate tax rate to 28 percent from 21 percent. A tax on workers and shareholders would raise $1.3 trillion. Fossil fuels are hit up for $45 billion, and we could go on through five pages of line items in the budget tables. The point is that... um, They're not going to stop demanding tax increases, even if they fail to pass last year's um, Build Back Better plan. And Mr. Biden's job approval rating is 41 percent. Let's hope none of these tax increases pass. But the appetite for more money really is insatiable. And that, of course, is not really news. Well, a U.S. general has admitted that Biden's deterrence strategy to prevent Russian invasion of Ukraine has failed. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. He uh, features uh, conversations with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Egypt's President Jordan's King Abdullah II, United Arab Emirates Crown Prince, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was in that position at the time. And Israeli President Reuven Rivlin. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, U.S. General Todd Walters admitted that President Biden's strategy to deter Russia from invading Ukraine failed during testimony before the House Armed Services Committee today. Walters made the admission in response to a question from Republican Wisconsin Representative Mike Gallagher. While Gallagher didn't reference Biden by name, he questioned Walters about the effectiveness of the U.S. effort to deter Russia's invasion by non-military means in the months leading up to the invasion. You, as a, com- uh, as a combatant commander, felt that you were part of an interagency effort intended to deter Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine, Gallagher asked. That's correct, Walters responded, deter and dissuade. Would it be fair to say that deterrence failed in Ukraine, Gallagher pressed. Number one, I would say that NATO's solidarity remained, Walters began, be, uh, before uh, being cut off by Gallagher, pressing for a direct answer to the question. I can't argue with your conclusion, Walters finished. Well, the exchange comes as the administration continues to insist its uh, threat of sanctions against Russia were never meant to deter an invasion. Of course, that depends on who you talk to. The president said it was never intended for that purpose. His vice president, his military representatives and his White House spokesman all said the opposite. Let's get something straight, Biden told a reporter who pressed him on that issue last Thursday. You remember if you covered me from the very beginning, I did not say that. In fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. Now, sadly, that wasn't the same message others were giving. Vice President Kamala Harris indicated otherwise when asked whether she believed sanctions would deter Putin in February. Absolutely. We strongly, we strongly believe and remember also that the sanctions are a product not only of our perspectives as the United States, but a shared perspective among our allies. And the allied relationship is such that we have agreed that deterrence Effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one, especially because, remember, also, I'm directing, uh, quoting directly, we still sincerely hope that there is a diplomat path out of the moment. 
she said at the time. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also stated in February in an interview with CNN that the purpose of the sanction in the first instance is to try to deter Russia from going to war. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki also affirmed that the purpose of Biden's sanctions was to have a deterrent effect. Sanctions can be a powerful tool, she went on to say. So some confusion as to what the purpose of that was intended to be. But the U.S. commander did admit that the deterrent strategy failed in Ukraine. Well, the current war in Ukraine and Russia's threatening actions toward NATO countries, coupled with a rising China in Asia, highlights a strategic pickle for the United States. The need to be able to deter or potentially fight two major adversaries in two very different regions of the world at the same time with the military it has on hand. That had been our strategy, but that changed most recently. And while the U.S. is unlikely to face two significant competitions or competitors at the same time, the possibility is not zero. The current situation in Ukraine with Russian President Vladimir Putin launched missiles landing close to Poland and Chinese President Xi Jinping's ideological commitment to bring Taiwan into China provides an excellent opportunity for an opportunist nation to attempt a hostile act while the rest of the world is distracted. The U.S. is a global power with interests and responsibilities throughout the world. It has to be capable, capable rather, of protecting America's uh, Americans abroad, allies, and the freedom to use international sea, air, space, and cyber space. Um, this is uh, not e- an easy task, and the U.S. military today is not positioned to take it on. It is too small, too old to fight on numerous fronts, we're being told. Force drawdowns since the end of the Cold War and 20 years of fighting in the Middle East have left the U.S. military a shell of its former self. This should worry everyone, especially because China and Russia spend a significant portion of their economic output on their defense budgets with the purpose of challenging American military superiority. The Chinese government is rapidly expanding its military forces. Perhaps the most visible example of this is its shipbuilding program. At the end of 2020, the size of China's navy was approximately 360, 60 rather. Compare that to a U.S. Navy a fleet of 297. China's military forces must be modernized by 2035, according to Xi. By 2049, he claims they should be a world-class military power capable of fighting and winning wars. The U.S. strategy, not altogether clear in the days ahead. Meanwhile, in rather an interesting story, two Russian fighter jets that violated Sweden's airspace earlier this month were equipped with nukes with the aim of scaring Stockholm after Putin had threatened military action if Sweden or Finland joined NATO. Apparently, four planes had taken off from uh, Russia before flying over Sweden. The jets violated the country's airspace over the island of Gotland on the 2nd of March. Two of the aircraft um, were attack planes, and they're now said to have carried nukes. This is a very sobering thing. They consisted of um, uh, two Sukhoi-24 attack planes, Uh, which were escorted by two Sukhoi-27 fighter jets. It was the uh, two attack planes, which were, according to uh, local news there, equipped with nuclear weapons. The violation of Swedish territory lasted for about a minute. The country's Air Force deployed the JAS-39 Gripen, which took pictures of the intruders. It was then, says Swedish media, that it was confirmed the Russian planes were equipped with nuclear warheads. This is a signal to Sweden that we have uh, nuclear weapons and we could also consider using them. Military strategic planner uh, Stefan Ring 
uh, said in the country. We assess it as a conscious action, which is very serious, especially as Russia is a warring country, added Air Force Chief Carl Johan Edstrom. I cannot uh, rule out incorrect navigation, but everything indicated that it was a deliberate act that they violated Sweden's borders. The incident came days after Russian President Putin had threatened military action against Sweden and neighboring Finland should either join NATO. The countries had been conducting joint military exercises at the time. Well, in light of the current situation, we're very concerned about the incident. That's what Swedish uh, Mr. Engstrom said following the incident. This is unprofessional and irresponsible behavior from the Russian side. Swedish fighter jets were scrambled and uh, took Photos of the Russian jets, the statement said, after the end of the Cold War, Sweden slashed military spending. It was only after Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014 that Parliament agreed on a turnaround. Sweden reintroduced mandatory military service in 2017, reopened its garrison on the island of Gotland in the Baltic Sea in 2018. In October, it bumped up defense spending by 40 percent with an extra 27 billion Swedish kroner. Uh, to be added to the defense budget in 2021 to 2025. Sweden is not a NATO member, but uh, cooperates rather closely with the alliance. However, like neighboring Finland, the debate around NATO membership has been reignited in recent weeks. According to a poll by public broadcasters SVT in April, support for joining NATO is historically high in Sweden at 41 percent. You might recall... um, a short time ago, I talked about Finland, and they are significantly uh, higher in terms of um, fin- Finnish residents who are interested in and now favorably view the notion of joining NATO. It's amazing to me how quickly this could escalate into something much larger than Russia attempting to invade Ukraine and what Vladimir Putin might do to save faith, given the fact that it's been 34 days and he's yet to overwhelm the country. I hope we're all on our knees praying about the future there and for the rest of the world. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a break, but we'll be back. I promise. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in 2021, the migrant surge at the southern border hit its highest point in two decades. But as bad as things are currently, the situation at the border may get even worse. President Donald Trump's administration created the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Order, Title 42, to allow immediate deportation um, from countries where there was a widespread communicable disease. It was a common sense measure to protect public health during a time of pandemic. Even the Biden administration kept the rule in place. Well, that could and is very likely to change by the end of the week. Pressure from activists and the reduction of COVID-19 restrictions has, according to multiple reports, led the administration to reconsider Title 42. It's noteworthy that the same activist groups and politicians that insisted on most restrictive COVID-19 policies at home have been most vocal about ending a rule that would allow border officials to do the bare minimum to preserve the health and safety of Americans during a pandemic. Well, ending Title 42 could have serious consequences at a time when the overall picture at the border is already pretty grim. Well, even before the president took office, it was pretty clear that he would take a different approach to the border than his predecessor. Once in office, he worked quickly to ensure it would be more difficult to arrest, detain, deport illegal immigrants. In the months after 
the president became president, illegal border crossings soared. The administration and its uh, media allies initially dismissed this as a temporary seasonal problem, but we all know by now that it wasn't. The number of July border arrests in a hot month that typically sees lower border crossing numbers went over 200,000. This is the highest number seen in any single month in 21 years. The trend hasn't abated in 2022. In February, 164,973, at least that we know of, encounters between Border Patrol and um, those entering the country illegally at the southern border. This is a threefold increase from February of 2020 and marks a year-long streak of over 150,000 border apprehensions per month. As the New York Post noted, there have been um, over two million border encounters since the president became president and an estimated half million additional border crossers who've avoided Border Patrol altogether. What we have at the border is already an epic crisis that requires a serious rethinking of policies and rhetoric coming from the White House. The president, uh, you may remember, maligned Border Patrol in September by accusing agents of abusing migrants. The story of the agents whipping migrants was debunked, but the president never apologized. It's now six months into the official investigation. No report has been released. It would be embarrassing. So not only is Border Patrol besieged by the very serious task of dealing with the historic migrant surge, it's also been thrown under the bus from the top. It's in that context of this environment that the administration is set to make the border control problem significantly more challenging. Even two Democratic senators from Arizona, a border state at the forefront of the crisis, insisted that Title 42 remain in place. Democrat Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly sent a letter to the president expressing their concern. Former acting commissioner of Customs and Border Protection Mark Morgan blasted the idea of removing Title 42 as one of the uh, that defies logic and common sense. In an interview with National Desk, He explained how it would overload the already taxed system, saying the facilities are already dangerously overcrowded. And when we start seeing those numbers, which we've already started to see flow in, it's going to be crushing. There's going to be nothing for them to be able to do except release individuals as fast as possible. Many of these were not going to know anything about. We're not going to know who they are. It's simply going to endanger America and it's going to cost lives. Well, the border crisis is getting worse, not better. One of the primary jobs of the federal government is to maintain the border and uphold the laws that the American people have put in place to do so. What we're seeing is something quite different. It's the same tack uh, we've seen from the president and the defund police movement again and again. They cave to the most extreme voices on the left and the country pays the consequence. The midterm elections are coming. We'll see what happens then. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, he signed legislation that bans transgender athletes from participating in girls' high school or college sports on Wednesday. The Save uh, Women's Sports Act passed in Oklahoma in the House by 79 to 18 vote last week and was subsequently approved by the state Senate. The bill to us in Oklahoma is just common sense, the governor said. A Republican who's running for re-election this year said at the signing, when it comes to sports and athletics, girls should compete against girls. Boys should compete against boys. And let's be very clear, that's all this bill says. The bill reads, in part, athletic teams designated for females, women or girls shall not be open to students of the male sex. Opponents of the bill denounced the law as contrary to federal civil law. Ben Shapiro says Will Smith's slap and microaggression is part of the culture. Perhaps the most 
A bankable star of his generation won an Oscar for Best Actor for King Richard, but it wasn't why he made headlines. He made headlines for the action that you all um, had the opportunity to either hear about or see. Um, Chris Rock, for his part, tried to play off the situation as a joke, but Will Smith wasn't letting it go. He made some rather strong comments once he was seated. Suffice it to say, it was perhaps the oddest incident in nationally televised history. The one rivals might have been Justin Timberlake ripping off Janet Jackson's top, revealing more than he should have during the Super Bowl halftime show or the live O.J. Simpson car chase during the NBA Finals. Ben Shapiro points out it's easy to brush off the events as yet another uh, disposably silly celebrity moment. It would be easier if Representative Ayanna Presley hadn't immediately tweeted and then deleted. Thank you. Hashtag Will Smith. Shout out to all the husbands who defend their wives living with alopecia in the face of daily ignorance and insults, end quote. Or if uh, Representative Jamal Bowman, a Democrat from New York, hadn't tweeted teachable moment. Don't joke about a black woman's hair. Or if the entire Academy Awards audience hadn't given Smith a standing ovation a few moments later. Or if there hadn't been widespread support for Smith's slap online, thanks to the now common belief that verbal insults constitute a form of violence to which violence is an acceptable, indeed commendable response. The social compact by which verbiage and violence remain strictly separated, excuse me, is a delicate one. For most of human history, words were treated as punishable by physical response. Dueling was commonplace in societies for centuries. Familial retaliation for insult was regular, and wars were even fought over verbal slights. But over time, civilized people traded away the privilege of personal use of force in favor of rules. Truly offensive words could sometimes meet with social disapproval or even ostracization, but certainly not violence. Now we seem to be reversing the trend. The entire theory of microaggressions suggests that if you are offended, it is because someone has aggressed against you and aggression requires response. To deny someone's preferred pronouns is now an act of erasure amounting to violence since the person so slighted might feel damaged in their sense of worth or authenticity. Once we reconnect the severed link between words and violence, civilization will begin to break down. We can hope that Will Smith's slap remains an aberration. A country in which comedians are regularly assaulted for making jokes will soon be rather humorless place. But unless Americans are willing to reestablish the hard barrier between words and violence, will become a far more silent and far more violent place. Again, so writes Ben Shapiro, a graduate of UCLA and Harvard Law School and host of the Ben Shapiro program. As I mentioned earlier, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has released an update on the slap that rocked the Oscars in an open letter in which members expressed their upset and outrage as Will Smith faces a formal review for his actions. The Academy issued a letter late Tuesday about the incident at the uh, at the Oscars and said the situation was still being processed and it will be a few weeks before it reaches a conclusion. A few weeks. Huh. Well, the body confirmed that their board of governors will decide on appropriate action for the King Richard star, for which he, of course, won the Academy Award Best Actor. The Academy condemns the actions of Mr. Smith, they wrote at last night's show. The Academy um, previously told Newsweek, we have officially started a formal review around the incident and will explore further action and consequences in accordance with our bylaws, standards of conduct and California law. 
Questions now remain about whether Smith will be stripped of his best actor, Oscar. Smith has since apologized to Rock for the altercation, writing on social media, jokes at my expense are part of the job. But a joke about Jada's medical condition was too much for me to bear, and I reacted emotionally. Rock says that he had no idea she had alopecia. She was just following, as far as he understood, a fashion trend of shaving one's head. The Los Angeles Police Department said on Sunday that Rock declined to file a police report. If the involved party desires a police report at a later date, LAPD will be available to complete an investigation report, uh, they said, of the event. Meanwhile, Rock, who has yet to publicly address what happened, he's, uh, in fact, doing a comedy show tonight. My guess is it'll come up. Uh, Anyway, he's due to begin a U.S. tour with demand for tickets to his shows surging immediately following Sunday night's event. We'll see what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, a conversation with Joel Rosenberg, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Joel Rosenberg, has released his newest nonfiction book, The First in Several Years. Enemies and Allies is the title of the book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Well, it skillfully and clearly explains the importance of the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. It explores vital questions about the threats posed by radical and apocalyptic Islamism and the efforts to make peace in the Middle East 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. It examines the grave and growing Iranian threat and is the first book to explain the inside story of how the game-changing Abraham Accords came to pass. It includes exclusive, never-before-published interviews, insights, analysis from his conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. It is fascinating, as Rosenberg books always are. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author of 15 novels, five nonfiction books, and nearly five million copies have been sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. He and his wife live with their family in Jerusalem. He joins us today to talk about his latest enemies and allies. Joel Rosenberg, welcome back. Georgine, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Well, it's always a thrill when we hear a Rosenberg Rosenberg book has come out. And before the ink is dry, we're trying to arrange an interview. So I appreciate the time that you have taken to to join us here today. Um, We are in the... In the middle of a, an evacuation, if you will, from Afghanistan that has left many Americans in the uh, on the eve of the um, September 11th, 20th anniversary, wondering where we stand as a nation, what's likely to happen in the Middle East. Let's begin where your book begins in the first part, the threats that we have faced and may face in the future. What are the most serious threats that we face today in the Middle East, particularly given what's just happened in Afghanistan? Well, I hate to say this, Georgine, but, uh, but we better start with the, the, the central threat here, and that's President Joe Biden. And by that, I mean the threat in the Middle East that, that, that we have to fear and we have to deal with is radical Islamism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but 
the, the worst thing that you can do in the central theme of enemies and allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it, right? We were blindsided by Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We were blindsided by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda 20 years ago, tomorrow, uh, Saturday. But <laughs> we all as Americans have been blindsided now by a president who has surrendered uh, to a radical Islamist terror regime that we spent 20 years, almost 2,500 American courageous men and women fighting, and almost $2 trillion, and the country was stable. So the, Afghanistan had been won. Now, to be, it's Afghanistan. I've been there. I've spent time with the tribal Muslim leaders there. I've spent time with Afghan Christians on the ground there. It's not Paris. You know, it's not like liberating Paris from the Nazis. And then you're like sitting at a cafe saying, oh, this is lovely. This is Paris. It's Afghanistan. I get it. It's not pretty. But it was stable. American soldiers and people were not dying. And, and the, the President Biden walked in, pulled out the critical Jenga stick, and the whole thing has collapsed on the eve of 9-11. Now, when you have someone who completely doesn't get it uh, in the White House— this is incredibly dangerous because while the Taliban is bad, if, if Biden can't deal with the Taliban, how is he going to deal with the nuclear apocalyptic tyrants that are in Tehran? That's what terrifies me. Um, and I, I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm horrified and angered. And, I, I, you know, oh, my God, we have a president who, who just surrendered. A two trillion dollar, twenty five hundred soldier and marine investment. Yep. What in the world is he doing? Leaving our equipment behind and our people behind as well. Now you made reference to Iran, and uh, Iran is a is, is an existential threat not just to the United States, not just to Israel, but among Muslim nations with whom uh, leaders you have met. Uh, talk a bit about Iran and the role that they are playing in destabilizing the region, while at the same time. Uh, contributing to some of the the Arab and Muslim nations seeking peace. Well, that's right. And what Enemies and Allies does is I I take you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds in the most powerful uh, American-allied countries in the Middle East. Obviously, Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Ruby Rivlin, but also the Saudi leaders, the Bahraini leaders, the Emirati leaders, the Jordanian leaders, the uh, Egyptian leaders at the top, like kings, crown princes, presidents, and prime ministers. And I asked them, what do you think about Iran? Let me give you, and they, and they spoke to me on the record. This is the only book of its kind. There's not a single book out there where an author could spend hours and hours and hours with the main leaders in our alliance. And all of them made it clear that they worry that American leaders, not all of them, but, but, but many, don't understand the threat from Iran. Uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, said the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Now, you would expect that from me. <laughs> You'd expect that from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, the fountainhead of Mecca and Medina. It's the, they're the caretakers, the custodians of Islam in the world. They, you know, uh, on 9-11 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi. 15 of the 19 hijackers, Saudi. So here's the head of Saudi Arabia 
telling me a Jewish evangelical Israeli sitting in the palace on the record that Iran is so dangerous and it's being led by the new Hitler. It gives you a sense. I totally agree with him, by the way. And this is, and to summarize it in one phrase, what I fear, what sorry, Netanyahu fears, what MBS fears, what everybody in the room fears is a nuclear 9-11. Mm. And God forbid Biden get blindsided by that. Mm. Talk a little bit about the Russian-Iranian axis and the potential of Turkey joining that alliance. Well, that's interesting, right? Because so for the last 20 years, there's always been the risk that Iran was going to get nuclear weapons, right? But and so a lot of people say, like, Joel, haven't you said every now and then or quoted people saying, you know, they're just a few years away? That's true. Why haven't they gotten it? Why hasn't Iran gotten the bomb yet? Well, because bad things seem to happen to their nuclear scientists. You know, they don't, they just disappear or they die mysteriously. Like, Georgine, I don't think it, I recommend that you go into the life insurance business in Iran <laughs> if you're trying to sell policies to the Iranian nuclear scientists because they just don't last that long. Uh, their equipment blows up, their computers malfunction. What's happening? Uh, United States, Israel, the Arab countries are secretly sabotaging and perhaps even assassinating a lot of these leaders. That's what slowed this down. I say that as the prelude to your question, because what's happened is, and I describe this in great detail Mm -hmm. in the first section of Enemies and Allies, what Iran has done has decided we need to build alliances with America's worst enemies, Uh, Russia, a nuclear power, China, a nuclear armed power. North Korea, a nuclear armed power. Turkey, which is not exactly a nuclear armed power, has the largest military in Europe. And that's what is happening. Iran is building these close ties with people they totally disagree with, ideologically, politically, and have had huge conflicts with with historically. But they all hate America. They all hate the West. And they're all banding together in incredibly dangerous Alliance, And that's something that I, I don't have people talking about. They talk about Iran almost as though Iran's operating by itself. Mm-hmm. But it's Putin, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, that's selling Iran nuclear technology that has sent Russian nuclear scientists to work in Iran's uh, illegal nuclear industry. Uh, it's Putin who's selling advanced weapon systems to Iran and running political interference at the U.N., for Iran. So Iran's just not trying to do this by itself. It has major players on its team, and we need to wake up and understand what's going on. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Some fascinating conversations he has had with world leaders. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Joel Rosenberg, has released his newest nonfiction book, The First in Several Years. Enemies and Allies is the title of the book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. 
Well, it skillfully and clearly explains the importance of the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. It explores vital questions about the threats posed by radical and apocalyptic Islamism and the efforts to make peace in the Middle East 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. It examines the grave and growing Iranian threat and is the first book to explain the inside story of how the game-changing Abraham Accords came to pass. It includes exclusive, never-before-published interviews, insights, analysis from his conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. It is fascinating, as Rosenberg books always are. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author of 15 novels, five nonfiction books, and nearly five million copies have been sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. He and his wife live with their family in Jerusalem. He joins us today to talk about his latest, Enemies and Allies. Joel Rosenberg, welcome back. Georgine, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Well, it's always a thrill when we hear a Rosenberg <laughs> Rosenberg book has come out. And before the ink is dry, we're trying to arrange an interview. So I appreciate the time that you have taken mm, to, you. to join us here today. Um, we are in the in the middle of a, an evacuation, if you will, from Afghanistan that has left many Americans in the uh, on the eve of the um, September 11th 20th anniversary wondering where we stand as a nation what's likely to happen in the middle east let's begin where your book begins in the first part the threats that we have faced and may face in the future what are the most serious threats that we face today in the middle east particularly given what's just happened in afghanistan well i hate to say this georgine but, uh, but we better start with the 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 central threat here, and that's President Joe Biden. And by that, I mean the threat in the Middle East that that we have to fear and we have to deal with is radical Islamism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but the the worst thing that you can do in the central theme of enemies and allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Right. We were blindsided by Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We were blindsided by Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda 20 years ago tomorrow, uh, Saturday. But we all as Americans have been blindsided now by a president who has surrendered uh, to a radical Islamist terror regime. that We spent 20 years, almost 2,500 American courageous men and women fighting, and almost $2 trillion, and the country was stable. So the, Afghanistan had been won. Now, to be, it's Afghanistan. I've been there. I've spent time with the tribal Muslim leaders there. I've spent time with Afghan Christians on the ground there. It's not Paris. You know, it's not like liberating Paris from the Nazis, and then you're, like, sitting in a cafe saying, oh, this is lovely. This is Paris. It's Afghanistan. I get it. It's not pretty. But it was stable. American soldiers and people were not dying. And, and the, the President Biden walked in, pulled out the critical Jenga stick, and the whole thing has collapsed on the eve of 9-11. Now, when you have someone who completely doesn't get it uh, in the White House, this is incredibly dangerous because while the Taliban is bad, if, if Biden can't deal with the Taliban, how is he going to deal with the nuclear apocalyptic 
tyrants that are in Tehran. That's what terrifies me. Um, and I, I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm horrified and angered. And I, 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 you know, oh my God, we have a president who, who just surrendered a $2 trillion, 2,500 soldier and marine investment. What in the world is he doing? Leaving our equipment behind and our people behind as well. Now you made reference to Iran and, uh, Iran is a is, is an existential threat, not just to the United States, not just to Israel, but among Muslim nations with whom uh, leaders you have met. Uh, talk a bit about Iran and the role that they are playing in destabilizing the region, while at the same time uh, contributing to some of the, the Arab and Muslim nations seeking peace. Well, that's right. And what Enemies and Allies does is I, I take you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds in the most powerful uh, American allied countries in the Middle East. Obviously, Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Ruby Rivlin, but also the Saudi leaders, the Bahraini leaders, the Emirati leaders, the Jordanian leaders, the uh, Egyptian leaders at the top, like kings, crown princes, presidents and prime ministers. And I asked them, what do you think about Iran? Let me give you, and they, and they spoke to me on the record. This is the only book of its kind. There's not a single book out there where an author could spend hours and hours and hours with the main leaders in our alliance. And all of them made it clear that they worry that American leaders, not all of them, but, but, but many, don't understand the threat from Iran. Uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, said the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Now, you would expect that from me. <laughs> You'd expect that from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, the fountainhead of Mecca and Medina. It's the, they're the caretakers, the custodians of Islam in the world. They, you know, uh, on 9-11, 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi. 15 of the 19 hijackers, Saudi. So here's the head of Saudi Arabia telling me, a Jewish evangelical Israeli sitting in the palace, on the record, that Iran is so dangerous, and it's being led by the new Hitler. It gives you a sense. I totally agree with him, by the way. And this is, and to summarize it in one phrase, what I fear, what, and, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Netanyahu fears, what MBS fears, what everybody fears, is a nuclear 9-11. Hmm. And God forbid Biden get blindsided by that. Hmm. Talk a little bit about the Russian-Iranian axis and the potential of Turkey joining that alliance. Well, that's interesting, right? Because so for the last 20 years, there's always been the risk that Iran was going to get nuclear weapons, right? But and so a lot of people say, like, Joel, haven't you said every now and then or quoted people saying, you know, they're just a few years away? That's true. Why haven't they gotten it? Why hasn't Iran gotten the bomb yet? Well, because bad things seem to happen to their nuclear scientists. You know, they don't, they just disappear or they die mysteriously. Like, Georgine, I don't think it, I recommend that you go into the life insurance business in Iran <laughs> if you're trying to sell policies to the Iranian nuclear scientists because they just don't last that long. Uh, their equipment blows up, their computers malfunction. What's happening? Uh, the United States, Israel, the Arab countries are secretly sabotaging and perhaps even assassinating a, a lot of these leaders. That's what slowed this down. I say that as the prelude to your question, because what's happened is 
and I describe this in great detail Mm -hmm. in the first section of Enemies and Allies. What Iran has done has decided we need to build alliances with America's worst enemies. Uh, Russia, a nuclear power. China, a nuclear armed power. North Korea, a nuclear armed power. Turkey, which is not exactly a nuclear armed power, has the largest military in Europe. And that's what is happening. Iran is building these close ties with people they totally disagree with, ideologically, politically, and have had huge conflicts with with historically. But they all hate America. They all hate the West. And they're all banding together in an incredibly dangerous alliance. And that's something that I, I don't see people talking about. They talk about Iran almost as though Iran's operating by itself. Mm-hmm. But it's Putin. Vladimir Putin in Moscow that's selling Iran nuclear technology that has sent Russian nuclear scientists to work in Iran's uh, illegal nuclear industry. Uh, it's Putin who's selling advanced weapon systems to Iran and running political interference at the UN for Iran. So Iran's just not trying to do this by itself. It has major players on its team, and we need to wake up and understand what's going on. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Some fascinating conversations he has had with world leaders. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back. Joel Rosenberg is my guest. He has written a book, Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's based in Jerusalem. He skillfully and clearly explains the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. Uh, He continues the conversation we began in the first hour of today's program. This is such a fascinating book. And as we are just days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, as you talk about Saudi Arabia, there are questions being raised about the role they played in uh, 9-11 uh, 20 years ago. In fact, um, uh, 9-11 families have asked the president not to attend events over the weekend uh, until it's made clear what role the Saudis played in all of that. Your thoughts on uh, the role that they might have played there and where they stand 20 years hence? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, Georgina, I have not seen any solid evidence that the, the Saudi government has actively or even passively played a role in, in planning and orchestrating and assisting and aiding and abetting al-Qaeda in any of that uh, attack. Um, and just the opposite, I think you'd have to say, you know, the Saudis, uh, you know, we were their biggest purchaser of oil. And so it would be not clear why the Saudi government would send, encourage, assist uh, terrorists to go blow up their number one economic partner and ally. And don't forget, it was U.S. forces who, you know, uh, saved Saudi Arabia when Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait and was getting ready to invade Saudi Arabia. We sent a half million soldiers to the region. And, and many of them were based in Saudi Arabia to protect Saudi Arabia. So just to be clear, there's, there, 
did they have the means to do it? Yes. Did they have the motive to do it? No, they did not. Now, that being said, uh, what Saudi Arabia's government was guilty of was allowing a, 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 a climate to fester in the mosques, in the schools of hatred for Jews, hatred for Israel, um, a deep-seated negativity towards the West, even towards America. You know, so the government was pro-American, but there was a, but, but violent or let's let's say at least extremist Wahhabi Islam was being taught in the schools and in the mosques, and the Saudis didn't crush that, didn't deal with that. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is doing that now. He's fired more than 3,000 clerics who are extremists and won't change. He's changing the textbooks to get rid of the anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, anti-Western language, which is super important. Um, He's welcoming Christians and Jews into the kingdom. So I think there's a sea change of positive reform going on. But believe me, Saudi Arabia has a long way to go. I don't want to you know, paint too rosy a picture, mm-hmm. but it's the most significant change in the history of Saudi Arabia, and it's going in the right direction. I think we should encourage it, um, not um, castigate it and isolate it like President Biden, who has called Saudi Arabia a pariah state, even though he's dealing with Iran, whose president is on our U.S. sanctions list for murdering 30,000 Iranians. So what in the world is going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. Now, we sort of alluded to this in our conversation earlier uh, on the program, but let's talk about the Abraham Accords. At the time uh, it, it took place, um, the media here in the U.S. was loath to give uh, President Trump any credit for a role that he might have played in all of that. Uh, there've been, uh, there had been talk of a Nobel Peace Prize, although it's unlikely because he's Donald Trump that that uh, would have taken place. Talk a little bit about the Arab Accords and whether or not it was a big deal or not. The Abraham Accords is they are a huge deal, and not only President Trump, but um, his team and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and UAE uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who, as I told you, told me two years before he did it that he was going to do it, mm-hmm. and he did it, and the Bahrainis and the Sudanese and the Americans. Look, they all deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. This is, we haven't seen an a, a Arab-Israeli peace treaty since 1994. Some of your listeners weren't even born when the last peace treaty. That was between Jordan and Israel. And before that, you have to go back to 1979 between Egypt and Israel. That takes another swath of your, your, your radio listeners like, okay, I wasn't born then either. So... What I'm saying is this is a big deal, and it came from a, an American president who – even I, I, I was a never-Trumper in 2016, and I, I, I admit that in the book. And in fact, I told the president that when I met with him to talk to him about these issues in the Oval Office. But I told President Trump, look, I, I was very critical of you because I didn't trust you. I didn't believe you. I didn't think you could make these changes, and you are doing it, and it's huge. And – you know, for all the naysayers, right? President Biden says, hey, I got 50 years of experience and Trump has none. Okay, but but Trump got four Arab-Israeli peace treaties done and nobody thought he could do it. And Biden has surrendered to a radical Islamist terrorist group that was living in the caves last month. So does experience matter or wisdom and judgment? 
Yeah, we'll leave that a rhetorical question, but I think we know uh, what the answer is. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I have still criticisms of Trump's the way he would speak or his tweets or, you know, even some of the policies, including, let's, let's be honest, President Trump wanted to get all of U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. But to, so so I disagreed with that, and I was public about my disagreement. But here's the difference. Trump listened to his advisors. He listened to his generals who said, Mr. President, we can, we can dial down the number of forces, but let's be honest. The situation would, is like pulling out a Jenga stick. You'll collapse the system if you move too fast and if the Afghanis are not ready. They're more ready than they were a few years ago, but it's still, it's still sensitive. So don't go too fast. Trump listened. Biden didn't. And I, and I think what you're watching with President Biden is he's so sure that he has all this 50 years of experience and that he's right. But what you have is ignorance of radical Islamism, incompetent in foreign policy, matched with hubris. That's a very dangerous combination. And in Enemies and Allies, I note that there are a number of good, really good things that Biden has done over the years in foreign policy, even in the Middle East. But most of his instincts have been wrong. Mm -hmm. Biden was against President Obama sending special forces into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Even Hillary, I point out in the book, supported that, that hit on bin Laden. Biden was against it. Biden supported and, in fact, advocated for the complete removal of all U.S. military forces from Iraq in 2011. Most of the cabinet was against it, or at least the major ones, Panetta, uh, Bob Gates. But, but Biden prevailed, and, and, and uh, Obama put Biden in charge of that ex- um, evacuation. What happened in 2011? Well, we all, U.S. forces left. It created a vacuum. Al-Qaeda in Iraq morphed into something worse, ISIS, and began a genocidal campaign that took us almost 10 years to eradicate. But this is not Biden making it up as he goes along. He believes he's doing the right thing, and that's what makes him even more dangerous. Mm. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. Absolutely fascinating. We've talked a lot about some of the um, incredible leaders that you have met uh, in the Middle East, but you also took delegates, the delegations of evangelical leaders with you. Talk a bit about um, about that. First of all, the welcome they received and what the purpose of those meetings were. Happy to do that, uh, Georgine. This was fascinating because most of these Arab leaders, most of these countries, they had never invited evangelical Christians to meet with them ever. And um, and they asked me to do this. I, I wanted to do it. And usually it would be between 10 and 12 of us that would go in. You know, enough that um, you get sort of a cross-section. I mean, American evangelicalism, you know, 60 million people. So it's hard to to, uh, to do a good job with just 12 people. Um, but I tried to 
get people, you know, men and women, people from different um, theological, uh, you know, sectors, um, different races, you know, people with different angles to understand what was going on, who would ask really good questions that would really open up conversations. We went primarily to deal with religious freedom issues, you know, with Saudi Arabia, the crown prince. We said, you know, with, with all due respect, you know, you don't have a single church building that operates on Saudi soil. Like, you know, we just came from the United Arab Emirates. They have 700 freely operating churches. In Egypt, President el-Sisi, a devout Muslim, has built the largest church building in the history of the Middle East. And he asked us to come, and we were there when he gave it to the 17 million Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve, like, as a present. Like, why don't you have any churches in Saudi Arabia, and can we work on changing that? You know, so we got to have those type of conversations in Saudi Arabia. They told us there hasn't been a Christian delegation invited to the palace to meet the top leadership in the entire 300 years since the Saud family has been in power. Like, that's just an amazing thing Mm -hmm. that we got to do it. So we were advancing religious freedom, advancing human rights. Um, We were advocating, of course, for peace with Israel. And we wanted to understand how they were changing their textbooks and how they were changing, you know, how they were fighting radical extremism. And and every country had a slightly different flavor. We focused on slightly different topics. but, But overall, no Christian has ever gotten to do it. and we were just totally blessed by God. I can't explain really, except for we prayed for these open doors, and God said yes. But I, there's no reason why a Joel Rosenberg, Jewish, evangelical, American, Israeli, I'm not a billionaire. I don't have a huge political movement behind me. I, I you know, and at one level you'd say, well, what, what do they see out of this? What, what was in it for them? Well, honestly, they are trying to reach out to the American people, and they're trying to show the American people that they're not the Arab leaders of 20 years ago, that they've made huge changes. Now, honestly, Georgine, there is a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And we've told them respectfully but directly, listen, you're not doing good in this, this, in this area. And I say these things honestly in the book. Like, I'm not going to pull my punches, but I'll do it respectfully because I want to engage them. But I'm not satisfied with the reforms they've made. But I, I, am, I do praise the ones that are good, and there are so many that are good that most Americans don't know. 20 years ago, we were all saying, hey, where are the Muslims who are saying, what the heck? You know, why, why aren't Muslims standing up and fighting against these radicals? And today, there's a lot of leaders who are doing just that. And their stories need to be told, and then we need to keep pressing them for more change. We're talking with uh, Joel Rosenberg. His book is titled Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction. Just fascinating uh, what God is doing in that region and how he has used him and other evangelicals uh, to connect with uh, leaders in the Middle East. What do you see in terms of the future of peace in the Middle East? I'm reminded of the scripture that says, you know, peace, peace, and then. You know, all hell literally breaks loose. What do you see in the short term and perhaps the long term, uh, the future of peace in the Middle East? Well, the Bible certainly describes in Daniel chapter 9 that there will be a deceptive, even demonic peace that will lure Israel into thinking that this is a good thing, but in fact, it'll be a trap. 
But the but Jesus himself says, "Blessed are the peacemakers." Right? King David told commanded us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes. Paul told us to, you know, as long as it depends on us, make peace with all men. So when we pray for peace and we advocate for peace, and then Arab Israeli peace, Arab Israeli peace happened, let's not be cynical and say, "Well, that's that's the Antichrist doing it." I'm like, we're not we're not there yet, and and. It's almost like praying for Peter to be released from prison, and when he knocks on the front door, like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not really Peter. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if, if God answers our prayers and advances peace and security, we should be grateful and realize this doesn't happen easily. God is moving, and attitudes are changing. I'm not saying it's perfect. This book, Enemies and Allies, talks about how dangerous a moment it is because Iran is getting closer and closer to, to the bomb. But some really good things are happening. And we don't have time to get all into all of it. There's, there's more religious freedom in the region for Christians than ever in human history. And I would say that we're also seeing more Muslims and Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in human history. I mean, there's some extraordinary things, but you're not going to hear this on the NBC Nightly News. You're not going to see this um, on the front page of the Washington Post or even probably um, the, the Portland Press or what's the, I'm not sure what the local paper is. But, you know, it's unlikely that in Seattle and Portland and some of our mm-hmm. friends up with you all up in the Northwest, that they are watching for this or caring about it. But we need to care. And why do we need to care what's happening in the Middle East? Because it's not Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) But what happens in the Middle East, as we've just seen in the last few days and weeks, it affects us all. It affects our sons and daughters who serve in the military. It affects our gas prices. It affects our budgets when we have to spend $2 trillion to go defend ourselves. Like, this stuff matters. And this is the only book that gives you an update right now what's happening and who's who in the in in the theater uh, of operations there? Let me take you inside the palaces and have the most interesting on-the-record conversations that a normal person like you and me is ever going to get. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I don't know how you manage to do it every time, but it really is. Uh, fascinating. And I would encourage our listeners to to read the book, Enemies and Allies. Our brief conversation cannot um, provide all of the detailed information that you place in the book. Now, w- when your readers finish the book, what do you hope they ultimately come away with? Well, uh, first of all, with a, a, a clear sense of, of why the Middle East matters and, and what we should be supporting, like, you know, regardless of which party you're in, you know, we need Democrats to be pressing Biden and saying, look, we want Biden to succeed. I Look, me, Joel, a Republican, I want Biden to succeed. I, I'm not a cynic. I'm a critic, okay? I'm critical of what the president's doing, just as I was critical at times of what Trump did. I want Biden to change. We Democrats need to press Biden to you know, to not go down the road of appeasing Iran, but instead strengthen our alliances with Israel and the Arab world, help the Saudis make peace. This is, these are good things, and they should be bipartisan. So yes. that's the main thing. And then for Christians, I encourage, and I explain it in the book, 
I would encourage you to not just not just pray, but financially give to Christian ministries who are embattled um, on the ground in the region. My organization, the Joshua Fund, has raised more than $80 million over the last 15 years to strengthen our brothers and sisters on the ground. And that's one way that my wife and I and our team try to do something practical, not just to educate people, but to mobilize them to make an actual specific and tangible difference. Well, I am so grateful for your writing, but also grateful for the work that you do and the challenge that you pose to to Christians who really do care and want to do something constructive. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much. Oh, such an honor, Georgina. I, I love being with you. I, I wish it was in person next year in yeah. Portland. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Once again, Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. The book is published by Tyndale House. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.